Welcome to episode number nine of our podcast series, The Paper Trail from the Netherlands Journal of Geosciences. My name is Henk Kombrink, and in my position as the editor in chief, I'm asking authors of papers published in our journal about the highlights of their research, but also the driving forces behind performing the study. Just to make research papers more accessible, and giving authors a platform to tell a bit more about what goes on behind the scenes of writing scientific papers. In this episode, I'm talking to Iris van Koppenolle. She is a micropaleontologist from Leuven University in Belgium. The title of her paper is The Benthic Foraminiferal Response to the Mid-Maastrichtian Event in the Northwest European Chalk Sea of the Maastrichtian Type Area. Welcome, Iris. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No worries. I'm really happy that uh, that we yeah kind of meet now. It's it's always nice to meet authors of papers um, published in our journal. So welcome. Thank you. Uh, um, I think this is the first paper you wrote, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. I just graduated, so it's the first research I've ever done. Yes, no, that's quite exciting. Um, yeah, and I really liked it. <laughs> yeah, and it, and I think it's a reflection of your master thesis project, isn't it? Yes, yes, indeed. It's a continuation of my master thesis. Um, so for my thesis, I, I studied some samples from both quarries, and that was enough for a master thesis, but not yet enough for publication. And I really wanted to create a publication. So for a few months, I uh, continued uh, studying some more samples so I could turn it into a publication. Ah, right. So it, it is a master thesis uh, plus in a way. Yeah, yeah, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of, I think I doubled uh, the amount of samples that I studied. Wow. Yeah. You were, <laughs> you were quite determined to get it published then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's nice. And um, your, one of your supervisors, uh, Johan Vellekoop, he, um, he told me that your paper is part of the Maastrichtian Geoheritage Project. Can you maybe give a, a bit of a summary of what that project entails? Uh, yes. So the Maastrichtian Geoheritage Project, the goal of the project is to uh, preserve uh, our geoheritage of the Maastrichtian. Uh, so there are many uh, quarries that contain Maastrichtian sediments and a lot of those quarries are no longer being worked on so they're getting overgrown by plants and the project is aiming to uh, collect many samples, high resolution sample sets and also they take with drone images they can take like a 3D overview of the quarry so they can preserve what is there for future research even when the quarries are now getting overgrown. I see. And and uh, is it really like these quarries are completely overgrown, which means that any access to the geology is, is very much limited? Uh, not yet. Um, so the two quarries that I worked on in this uh, project, um, one of them was already partially overgrown. That was the Hallenbeck quarry in uh, Belgium. And the other quarry, the NC quarry, um, when we went there for the sampling, I also went there to sample for the project before I even did my thesis research. Um, 
that was not yet overgrown because they were transforming the quarry to uh, a public area for walking. So then right. all the, the yeah, they, they cleaned it up to make it pretty. And then we also could take the samples. Right. But now I think it's going to start getting overgrown. Yeah. So this was the, the a golden opportunity in a way for you to to sample the sections again. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, and, and so how did your research kind of fit into the GeoHeritage project? Uh, yeah. So uh, my research uses uh, samples from two of the quarries that were already sampled in the project. Um, yeah. So I. I literally use the samples that were preserved yeah. to be studied. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, did, you didn't do the sample acquisition yourself. The the, the, sam the samples were already there for uh, you. From to... the Hallenby quarry, the samples were already there, but I did visit the quarry afterwards. The NC quarry was sampled in 2019, and then I volunteered to help with mm. the sampling. And then a year later, I decided to do uh, my thesis on those samples. Yeah. Okay. And then, yeah, what what is the what was your main research question? Yes. Um, <laughs> so maybe maybe I should give a bit of background how we came up with uh, this topic to uh, do my thesis on. Of course. Um, yeah. So my bachelor thesis we. We do not choose our topic for the bachelor thesis, but we choose like the, whether we want to do it in uh, paleontology or like in another field of geology. Um, and for my bachelor thesis, I chose paleontology and then I had to study samples from the Hallenby quarry to just see what the environment was like on the seafloor in the early Maastrichtian. Right. And in that bachelor research, there was one sample that was uh, quite sticking out because the benthic foraminiferal assemblage was completely different than from all the all the other samples. And I couldn't really explain that. And then um, a few years later, uh, Johan Vellekop, who was my um, supervisor, my co-supervisor, he noticed that uh, that one uh, sample that was sticking out of the rest, um, that that almost coincided approximately coincided with the mid-mistration event, which ah. was an event that was not yet well known. So that intrigued us because we already saw uh, something happening there in one of our samples. And we also found out that uh, the mid-mistration event is not yet well known. And most of its research is also still in the deep ocean. So it has not yet been studied in the shallow uh, sea environments, which are very common in the Cretaceous. So we found like um, we thought, how about I start studying to see what happens with the mid restriction event in these shallow environments. So that one sample like led us to the whole idea of studying it. Um, and maybe, maybe unfortunately, um, the conclusion of my research is that the mid restriction event is not really expressed in the shallow sea. So that one sample yeah. was just a one sample, not part of a bigger picture, probably just a local transient event. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, th that is 
a possible outcome of research, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's also interesting conclusion, yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely. And and, and le let's go and, and talk a bit more uh, about this, um, Iris, because obviously that is that is the bulk of your research. So um, for me, to be honest, I, I had never heard about the Maastrichtian event before yes. I, I read your paper. So, so can you put that event in a, in a bit more of a perspective? Uh, yes. Um, first of all, I have to say something about the definition of the Mitmestrichtian event, because um, first the term Mitmestrichtian event was used to describe the extinction of Inus remit bivalves. So those were, uh, were uh, a group of bivalves that were very common uh, for a very long periods, especially during the Cretaceous, and they all got extinct somewhere in the Mitmestrichtian. And that was very surprisingly because they lived almost anywhere and then they got extinct. So they called that event the Mitmestrichtian event. Okay. But then later they found out that uh, the extinction of the Inus remits is uh, highly diachronous. So mm -hmm. we see that they get extinct earlier in the highly high southern uh, latitudes and also earlier in the uh, more shallow uh, places like near uh, continental uh, yeah. margins yeah 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 um and also the it is estimated to be almost like a difference of six million years between the different extinction periods so of course you can no longer call that an event because that's too widespread um but then they also found out that around the same time so it's very diachronic so it's a white down uh, by time frame, but around the same time, there's also a stable carbon isotope event, uh, which is a stable carbon isotope isotope curve, where there's a, a high plateau with a decrease in the middle. And nowadays in paper, the more recent paper, that carbon isotope event with those three parts, that is what we call the mid event and no longer the extinction event. So in my research, I also call the mid 16 events to uh, name the stable carbon isotope curve. Right. Um, um, and the hypothesis that explains that uh, stable carbon isotope excursion um, is that there's some kind of reorganization of the oceanic deep water currents. Um, and that's could also be linked to the extinction of the Inus-Remit bivalves because if the ocean circulation starts changing, that could change the, the environments of the living environments in the benthic environment seafloor where they live. So that could cause the extinction. So what I wanted to study was the Mid-Mastrichtian carbon isotope event and see how it has effects on the shallow uh, environment that I study. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, just to go back to the, the extinction event, the reason why you think, well, why it is understandable, why it's a diachronous event is that the, the ocean circulation may have changed, but it didn't happen at the same place at the same time. It was a, a gradual yeah. uh, process that affected. Yeah, yeah the deep oceans uh, through time, through the, a period of six million years. Yes, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so and obviously the Maastricht area is not a deep ocean. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, 
can can you can you maybe set the scene a bit um how the Maastricht area looked like about 69 million years ago yes so um the Maastrichtian area was covered by a shallow sea so the uh, the water depth was approximately 80 to 100 meters of depth and it was a chalk sea so there was a continuous uh, precipitation of chalk um, yes that's uh, yeah. <laughs> what i can come up with now yeah and how far how far was the um because obviously well, many people will know that the in in the late cretaceous sea level was a lot higher so, so where what was the closest kind of land what yes yeah, so the closest landmass was the rheinisch massif okay. which was uh it was not extremely close so because we do not see a lot of sentiment uh, sedimental input it's pretty pure chalk that's deposited yeah. here so it's uh, a pretty offshore environment yes yeah a nice tropical sea Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, so then what I wondered, um, how did you identify the, this mid-Mastrictian event in these quarries? Yes, so um, the NC quarry uh, was uh, studied by uh, uh, Velikop et al. They have uh, published their data uh, also in 2020 um, and they uh, created a high resolution uh, carbon isotope uh, record across the NC quarry. And okay. so they found that isotope curve, the, the plateau with the negative inclination in the middle, they found that in the NC quarry. So they could uh, locate the mid restriction events in this NC quarry. Yeah. And through stratigraphic correlation, they could also see at what uh, uh, stratigraphic height that would then be in the Hallenby quarry, because both quarries are around eight kilometers apart from each other. So you can uh, really continue most of the layers. So through that research, we know the position of the mid-restriction event in both of those quarries. So if, I, if I'm correct, the the, the yeah, so, so the, the, the event was really kind of uh, proven through the Delta C13 uh, measure or uh, analysis from the NC quarry and then through yeah. correlation, you, you yeah. found that the same event or you could pinpoint the same event in the, in the other quarry. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. okay. And then your, your so, so your role was to sample or to do analysis on samples that kind of spanned this um mid-mastrictian event isn't it yeah yeah so i studied some samples before the events and then many during and then some after to see if there was a change in the benthic environment yeah across the mid-mastrictian events yeah and um well you already <laughs> alluded to it so what was your main uh, finding there? <laughs> yeah, so our main finding was that throughout the whole studied section and throughout the whole mid events and also the Inostromate extinction events uh, in the quarry that I studied, um, that the benthic environment was very, very stable. Mm -hmm. So it was a highly oxic environment 
there was no clear changes in the benthic foraminiferal number. So that's the amount of benthic foraminifera you find per gram of dry sediment. So if there's an increase in that, that means there's an increase in productivity at the seafloor, which would be because of a change in the organic matter flux. But we see that this stays very constant throughout the whole mid restriction event. Yeah. Also, the species evenness, which studies uh, the, it's a, a value to measure how many species are present and if there's one species in particular that dominates or if all mm. the species that are present are very equal. And we saw that that's also very equal. To, so that's also indicative of a very stable environment. So our conclusion is that uh, the shallow sea that we studied was not clearly affected by the mid-restriction event. No. But but did did you have did you find any of those bivalves at all in in the section? No, we did not. So um, we were hoping we would find those because the extinction level was uh, established before in papers, but that mm -hmm. was based on the macro fossils, so the large fossils of the of the shells. Um, and we crossed that extinction level and we tried to, because I was looking at the microscopic uh, foraminiferous, I was hoping I would find uh, inosremid prisms. So an inosremid bivalve, when uh, through, the through the taphonomic process, uh, mm -hmm. it breaks up into these small prisms, which are uh, less than half a millimeter in size. So I was hoping to find in my samples those prisms so I could more clearly pinpoint the extinction level. Yeah. But unfortunately, we did not find any of, our, any of those in the studied samples, even though we studied also samples from below the extinction yeah. level from the other papers. They were already rare, rare in the area. So Okay. Okay, so 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 in that sense, it may not have been too much of a surprise not to find any. No, indeed, but we we were hoping because then we would like be more able of to course. more clearly pinpoint the extinction level. Yes, yes. So w would your conclusion then be that that particular environment wasn't liked by these bivalves? Did they did they in the end prefer the deep seas? Uh, or well, or is can, it more of a, co a coincidence? <laughs> well, they can be found in many environments, mm. but as I already said before, they do get extinct uh, earlier in time near the shallow envir environments. And also, I think they're, they were a bit more common in more of the deep sea rather than in the shelf environments, if right. I recall correctly, correctly for my research. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but you did um, you did find something else, something else interesting, uh, a bit higher up in the succession, didn't you? Yes, indeed. Um, so I studied some samples before the mid restriction event and some samples uh, after the mid restriction events to observe the change of the event. Yeah. Um, but what we saw was in the samples after the mid-restriction event, the samples that go into the lanai member, so the last member of the formation that we studied, there we see that there's 
an order of magnitude increase in the benthic foraminiferal number and also the benthic foraminiferal accumulation rates. So the benthic foraminiferal, <laughs> foraminiferal number is, I already told that's the amount of uh, benthic foraminifera you find per gram of dry sediments. And the benthic foraminiferal accumulation rate, or BFAR, um, that's the benthic foraminiferal number um, multiplied by the density of chalk and multiplied by the sedimentation rate. So that really gives you a number of benthic foraminifera per uh, cubic centimeter, no, per square centimeter uh, times uh, thousand years. So yeah. that really shows the amount of productivity over the also incorporated uh, sedimentation rate. So if that increases significantly, which it did, it's like multiplied with in an order of, it went from numbers in 100 to numbers in the thousands. So there was a very large increase, which indicates that there was a large increase in the productivity at the seafloor, which would mean that there's an increase in organic matter to the seafloor. Because right. if there's more organic matter, they can be more productive. So there's a higher number of benthic foraminifera. Yeah, and 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 how how would you explain such a such a change? Yes, so we had to explain that by an increase in nutrients from somewhere. Yeah, and what we found that was surprising is we saw because we had the we had chemical data from the same samples on the same quarry from the uh, Velicope et al. paper from two, uh, 2022. Um, and we see in that paper, in the chemical data, that that part with the increase in nutrients at the seafloor, that's, that's also the purest chalk there is. There was very low content of uh, aluminium and titanium, which are indicative of uh, riverine inputs of nutrients. So the nutrients could not have been brought in by uh, a riven river or by the wind. So we had to look for another explanation. Um, there were some hypotheses on nutrient inputs in the early Maastrichtian, which were based on um, upwelling from the deeper ocean that brought nutrients. Also, um, winds could uh, create more circulation in the upper layers of the water with which could also increase the nutrients. But all of those hypotheses um, say that also the productivity in the upper water column is increasing. Right. And in our case, uh, in our situation, that was not the case, because if the productivity in the upper water column was increased, then the sedimentation rate would also have increased, because the chalk consists of coccolids, which live in the upper water column. Yeah. And the sedimentation rate was constant. So we needed a hypothesis that could explain an increase in organic matter at the seafloor without increasing the organic matter in the upper water column. Yes. So to explain <laughs> that, we came up with a hypothesis. Um, so our hypothesis is that in the shallow uh, epicontinental chalk sea of the Maastrichtian area, that there was a very efficient nutrient recycling in the upper water column. So um, many papers have already stated that the chalk seas were uh, very nutrient poor. 
However, there's still a continuation of chalk pr precipitation because we have a lot of chalk that yes. participated <laughs> through the whole period. Yeah. Yet there are not many nutrients. So we thought that that could be explained by very efficient recycling of those limited nutrients. So by that recycling, there could still be a participation of chalk. And then what we also found in the small section where there's an increase in organic matter flux to the seafloor, that was also a part of the studied sediments where the water depth was much more shallow. So we came up with the hypothesis that if indeed there's this nutrient recycling going on in the upper water column, in the more shallower environments, that recycling would happen closer to the seafloor. So the organic matter that does sink down has a shorter length to sink down. Yeah. So it has a larger chance of reaching the seafloor before it's already consumed by uh, other life forms. So that's our, our hypothesis that there's nutrient recycling and in the shallower environment of that section, there's more organic matter able to reach the seafloor. And we tried to find um, some other studies, some modern, modern situation that shows something uh, similar. And we did found that there is a, a shallow sea near the Arctic, where they have also found that in the shallower parts, there was more organic matter reaching the seafloor. And there they also explained it in that way. Right. Yeah, so that's our current hypothesis. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it sounds very interesting. And uh, but what what I then ask myself is if 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 you've got a um, shallower water depth, and that is why more nutrients reach uh, the sea floor, mm -hmm. less nutrients will become available in the photic photic zone, which may have an effect on how many coccolids <laughs> can grow. Yeah. Would that be a, a kind of effect you would expect? Because you said you didn't really see a change in, in, in photic zone yeah, there is activity. A, there's no clear change in the sedimentation rate. No, so the sedimentation rate re remains relatively constant. Yeah. Um, haven't really thought about that one. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm, I'm pretty sure that the amount of organic matter that is lost to the yeah. um, to the seafloor would be rather minimal compared to the high productivity that, that right. was in the the surface water, because okay. the bulk of the sediments is is the coccolids and the yeah. foraminifera are very small amounts compared to that. So I don't think the effect would be that right. big on the Okay. Now, and, and that is ex well, yeah, that, that's a very valid explanation. And, and that is actually one of the questions I, I kind of that popped in my mind whilst we were talking. It's uh, yeah. So what so what is the ratio if, if, if I collect a sample of chalk and I analyze it, what is the kind of ratio between coccoliths and benthic uh, organisms? Uh. I cannot give you an exact ratio, but maybe mm. if I explain my sample preparation, you will get a feel for it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Do so that. Uh, for each sample, I 
took around 30 grams of dry sediment, so 30 grams of chalk. Then I uh, wet sieved that to create uh, a fraction between 2 millimeters and uh, 63 micrometers. And then I dry sieved that again to get the fraction of my foraminifera, which was from uh, 125, 125 microns to uh, 630 microns. So that's the fraction that I studied. From those samples, so from those 30 gram, we went to that fraction. I would split that fraction until I got around 30 benthic foraminifera per sample. So I would split it until I reached around 300. And most of the samples were split around eight times. So you go from 30 grams, you most of it is smaller than the 63 microns. So most of it already flows away. Yeah. And then I also have to split it, like half it like eight times to then come up with 300 benthic foraminifera. Yeah. So I think the ratio is uh, pretty extreme. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so that means, yeah, still mo most biological activity happens in the photic zone yeah 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 indeed. with with a bit in 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 uh on the sea at the sea floor yes yes yeah okay no th that that's a, that's a good kind of setting to have in in, in your mind <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah excellent um because yeah th th there was one one um a bit in your paper where I did read that um, the mis is yet be well there was m most um, organ or material that ultimately settles on the seafloor is from the photic zone but you write that still that that there wasn't uh, a major amount of activity in the photic zone. Re maybe relative to other shallow seas or other shallow sea settings maybe because because of the, the the limited availability of nutrients in the chalk seas isn't it i'm not sure what oh. part you're referencing i'm oh. sorry <laughs> <laughs> well, well i'm i'm i don't know exactly where where i read it but maybe <laughs> um but I, let's I, pu let's put it this way i think you stated that the, yeah, the, the Maastrichtian seas were still restricted, quite restricted in terms of nutrients available, isn't it? And yes, hence, yes. yeah. So yeah, that so was a, it is pretty nutrient poor. That was already yeah. uh, proven in uh, different studies on. Uh, can't remember the exact word, but dinoflagellates and other okay. organic uh, microfossils. Yeah. 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 And that is partly because there wasn't really a lot of fluvial input. Um, yes, yes. So it's it's a very pure chalk. Yes. So I think maybe what you're referring to is there's a section in my paper that um, near the beginning in the introduction, there's a section in my paper that tries to explain how it is still possible that there's a lot of chalk mm. precipitating in nutrient poor conditions. Was that right. what you were yeah. looking for? Possibly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there we also um, put forth the hypothesis of uh, how modern coral reefs 
also exist in very nutrient-poor environments. And that's possible because uh, sponges can take up those few nutrients that are available. Yeah. And then those sponges themselves release the organic matter, which can then be used uh, on the benthic seafloor. And it does, it's also an hypothesis that that could be happening in the chalk seas. Um, we do not find a lot of calcareous sponge material mm -hmm. there, but you have these very regular uh, flint bands, especially yeah. higher up in the section. And it is a hypothesis that those flint bands consist of siliceous sponges, which, which could uh, work in the same way. Yeah, I see. So if I kind of summarize your, uh, your work and correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> Your, your study kind of evolved from looking for uh, an extinction event towards uh, a study that looked more into nutrient or nutrient recycling um, and, and try to explain what you what you found in your samples in that way, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, we for, our first focus was to see what the mid-mistrician event did in the shallow environment and then the conclusion yeah. was not much no. and then we saw some other things which were yeah. also interesting to first study yes definitely <laughs> no I, I think it's it's um very much worth a read your paper it, it's a it's a really nice nice piece so congratulations Thank Iris. You. <laughs> Thank um you. so yeah we, we have been talking for a bit so i think it's uh, kind of time to round off um and just a final question, what is it you are currently working on? Um, currently, I am not doing any research. I have mm -hmm. a, a job in IT at the moment, but I am uh, a, I have two applications running for a PhD. Um, yeah, and I'm waiting to see if I get one of those. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exciting times. <laughs> yes, yes, nervous. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. <laughs> well, uh, I wish you all the best Thank and you. I hope you secure uh, one. Yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> I think uh, ha and having a paper already is, is definitely a good starting point. Yes, it's also a very proud of, uh, an accomplishment I'm very proud of. I yes, also want to thank my co-authors that helped me a lot during this whole process. I learned really a lot doing yeah, this. No doubt. <laughs> yeah. um, so Iris, uh, yeah, thanks again very much for taking time today. Um, good, good. Um, so this was episode number nine of the paper trail. Thank you for listening and hope to see you or hear you next time. Thanks, Iris, and goodbye. Bye.